This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Jakob Janowski. He's going to be telling us how the Assad regime's tank fleet, which was at one point the sixth biggest tank fleet in the world, became almost completely destroyed in the Syrian civil war. He's going to be talking about how their tactics were completely useless and how the nepotism of the SAA, the Syrian Arab army, Assad's military, led in part to the complete downfall of the regime tank fleet. Janowski is also going to be talking about how internet censorship has deleted thousands of really valuable videos of the Syrian civil war. Keep us moving forward at patreon.com slash popular front and visit the shop. We've got new merch popularfront.bigcartel.com. Apologies, the audio is a bit ratty on this one, but you know, sometimes it happens. How the hell did Assad's forces manage to lose so many tanks? Well, long story short, Syrian army started this civil war with incredible amount of uh, tanks, APCs and uh, other equipment, uh, which it hoarded for like decades. And due to incompetence, poor training and uh, poor strategic decision making, they managed to lose, by my estimate, about 80% of them. <laughs> 80%? So how many tanks did they have in the first place? Well, uh, estimates vary a lot uh, about the uh, Syrian arsenal before the civil war. Uh, because it was always unclear how many uh, tanks uh, they lost in engagements with uh, Israel, uh, how many were scrapped, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, but uh, I think uh, between 3,000 and 3,500 tanks and give or take 1,500 APCs, something like that. So it was essentially sixth or fifth uh, biggest tank fleet in the world. So how did they have such a big tank fleet in the first place? Like, where did they get all of this from? Almost all of this uh, was obtained from Soviet Union decades ago uh, when they were fighting Israel on and off, uh, 1967, uh, 1973, etc., etc. And it was considered essential for, this, for Syria uh, to obtain a huge amount of weapons in order to achieve victory because uh, they were aware that Israel had some technological superiority or in case of uh, six-day war uh, they had element of surprise and also uh, Assad uh, was uh, afraid that if there was some crisis he could be uh, deposed by uh, foreign powers as well uh, especially after uh, Iraq invasion in 2003 so they continued uh, upgrading whatever old weapons they had for example uh, aircraft were upgraded in Belarusia. Tanks uh, received some uh, new parts uh, from North Korea, from Russia, and from other places. So they tried within their means to stay up to date, but uh, ultimately uh, you can do only so much with 50-year-old uh, designs. <laughs> yeah, so what kind of tanks and APCs were they buying at the time? Uh, well, most of it was not actually bought. A lot of it was uh, shipped uh, from Soviet Union during the Cold War, which essentially sent them uh, the tanks, aircraft and whatever they needed and whatever was uh, Soviet Union willing to send. They promised to pay later usually, uh, which never happened. <laughs> we call that in England, we call that on the never never. So yeah, you'll pay you back when, like never. But what kind of tanks were they? What, like T-55s, BMP-1, I guess? Yeah, uh, well... Uh, regarding BMPs, uh, 
uh, it was uh, like 90% of them were BMP1, uh, which is significantly imp- inferior to BMP2, weaker armor, and especially because uh, its main armament is uh, low velocity 73 millimeter, which honestly uh, is useless against tanks. And uh, when you are fighting in cities, uh, it's almost even more useless. It can uh, effectively transport the infantry, but it can't take uh, any hit from anything uh, bigger than half-inch machine gun or, let's say, grenades and things like that. Uh, It can take a little bit damage, but uh, anything serious like even basic RPG-7 heavy machine gun with uh, armor-piercing ammo uh, will uh, easily kill it. Right, and that's the APC, right, not the tanks. Yeah, yeah, and uh, tanks... Uh, Syrian army had like uh, 40-20-40 split between T-55s, T-62s and T-72s. And uh, obviously there were a lot of uh, variants like engineering uh, equipment and things like that. So there was uh, quite a complex mix of various versions uh, and some of it didn't make a lot of sense, especially in Syrian context. But you... If you get something for free or for cheap, you won't probably complain. <laughs> yeah, you don't argue. So you said like 80% of their tanks and armored vehicles. That's thousands of tanks, you know, considering how many they got. How did it happen? Like what specific battles? Who was it that was taking them down and with what? Uh, well, in uh, early part of Civil War, some of the losses uh, were straight uh, uh, defections where soldiers simply drove those tanks or APCs away, in some cases burned them down when they were escaping. But uh, only after serious uh, fighting started in 2012 did uh, Syrian army started taking serious damage. Due to uh, pre-Civil uh, War training, uh, there was little to no preparations for like urban fighting and also, uh, Syrian army didn't have exactly great tradition of uh, uh, promoting people based on competence. So people who are running things like sending tanks into streets with absolutely no regards for any tactics, which made them incredibly easy uh, for basic RPGs, IEDs, uh, or anything that uh, rebels had. In some cases, uh, there was like video of uh, rebels coming to tanks that were buttoned down so their crew didn't have any visibility or almost any and someone just ran to the tank dropped the grenade into the barrel or into the tank itself and ran away (laughs) i think i've seen that in indiana jones very brave because if they notice you they can kill you at fairly significant distance but as you get closer and closer if uh, the crew is inside of the tank there is, uh, especially with older Soviet tanks, uh, almost no visibility except of uh, straight ahead. So uh, they won't notice you until something goes wrong. Right. And and do you think, I mean, it sounds to me like a lot of the incompetence comes from the drivers of the tanks because I think a lot of people look at a tank, you know, people not particularly familiar with war and just think, oh my gosh, the tank, like, you know, it's this kind of... Being as if you know when that turns up everything gets shut down, but as we know that it's not really that's not really how it works. You know they're not indestructible. Yeah, uh, and also they have a lot of uh, weak spots. Uh, usually uh, or almost always, uh, a tank has very strong armor in front, but uh, sides uh, 
uh, of tank and especially the rear is very poorly armored. For example, like in a T-72, which is relatively modern within Syrian army, has side armor that you can penetrate with simple RPG-7. And as we know, almost everyone has those <laughs> in Syria. RPG-7, that's not exactly a huge, you know, rocket propelled grenade. It's not a huge weapon. And particularly yeah. when you're talking about guerrilla warfare or urban warfare, like you said, they're everywhere. Yeah, you can just wait for the tank to pass and uh, blow it up. Absolutely no problem because uh, you are aware of the tank. Uh, but if you have houses on the left, on the right, in front of you, behind you, uh, and that was also one of the biggest problems of Syrian army in early fighting is that they usually went without any infantry and with very poor, if any, coordination with like engineering vehicles that can tow damaged tanks away or help those crews repair whatever is damaged or malfunctions. So it was like simply driving through the streets and hoping to somehow defeat uh, the rebels, uh, but uh, they usually just expose those tanks for uh, so long that you had instances of like half a dozen vehicles being blown uh, in single incident, no problem. Whereabouts was that? Uh, that was mostly in Damascus during the intense fighting uh, in 2012 and 2013, Syrian army uh, essentially copied the same tactics again and again and again, learning from the mistakes only after uh, taking incredible casualties. And uh, it still took them a very long time to learn anything. <laughs> and what are the tactics? You know, you're saying that they, they obviously their tactics weren't working because they lost so many tanks. What was it that wasn't working? What were they doing? Just driving in yeah. and sitting around or what? Yeah, essentially, uh, uh, you uh, often drove, let's say, half a dozen uh, tanks and APCs into uh, whatever district uh, was currently controlled by rebels, because in uh, early Syrian civil war, there were not, no real fixed lines. So there was uh, a lot of attempts to hold ground when really there was no hope for it. It, it was forced from the top. You get the order to hold this town or hold this part of uh, city uh, somewhere. Uh, so you drove those tanks there uh, and they were essentially parked. As I mentioned before, uh, usually with uh, very little accompanying infantry uh, and uh, poor training for urban combat. So you can see video. Actually, it was one of the fairly early uh, videos that I recorded uh, from 2001 when there was uh, BMP parked uh, in the middle of homes, like literally no uh, infantry uh, guarding it or anything. Just, uh, I think, commander was visible in the turret. And sorry, we should just mention it, a BMP being a type of APC, a, um, whoa, what, what does APC stand for? Personnel character, armored personnel carrier. There you go. Right, uh, right. But yeah, as I mentioned, that those were in almost all cases BMP-1, uh, which is almost useless except for transporting troops to the front line uh, and then trying to support them. Uh, but uh, it's it was poorly designed vehicle 40 years ago. Now it's a dead trap. Uh, so essentially it was parked in the middle of homes. So incredibly hostile area already uh, and uh, no support anywhere near. Uh, and you see just someone 
who was obviously scouting, just looking around what's going on, and RPG gunner stepped out, aimed a rocket, and uh, killed it. Everything was uh, finished in like five seconds. And uh, you had uh, people who uh, looked at it, informed the gunner they are looking uh, into another direction, and they didn't stood any chance. Why is it that they were so incompetent, you know, the uh, the Syrian Arab army? Why were they so incompetent? Because if someone gave me a load of tanks, which is essentially what happened, we've, we've kind of established that they didn't really pay for them. If someone gave me like a fleet of tanks, um, I would just think, right, we need to be the best at using these tanks. Why is it they seem to be the worst? Well, uh, they are not the worst, but they are very uh, poorly trained. Uh, you must understand that for Syria, in terms of uh, conventional threat, uh, the major issue was Israel. And uh, so whatever training uh, they got was uh, usually uh, for some long distance uh, shooting from tanks, uh, anti-tank guided missiles and things like that. A lot of uh, artillery uh, got a fairly decent training, not great, but fairly decent. But there was very little prospect of uh, fighting Israel in cities uh, and other urban areas. So. Uh, it was very low priority, and only some infantry units get got what I would say okay-ish training. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, it was not helped at all by the fact that uh, promotions were issued based on perceived loyalty or bribes and things like that. So if you were from a family that was not popular with the regime, no matter how competent were you, uh, you got some uh, shit assignment, God knows where. <laughs> right, so so in part, the stupid nepotism of the SAA kind of ruined their tank fleet. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't just tank fleet. All parts of Syrian military had uh, similar issues, uh, maybe except uh, some of the Air Force, which was uh, mostly stuffed with uh, Alawites, uh, which is... Uh, Shia sect uh, to which uh, Bashar Assad belongs, uh, so uh, they were perceived as loyal and mostly were, and uh, as such they got a lot of uh, priority with equipment, money and everything else, uh, so that was one of the uh, few parts of Syrian military that mostly worked. <laughs> So, as we know, Russia is helping Assad, has been for quite a while now, I think, what, two years, something like that, maybe longer. Three years, three years. Um, so, we know they're helping them. Have you seen anything change in the way that the SAA deal with their, their tanks? Uh, well, uh, it's a more complicated uh, uh, by some issues and events that happened, uh, give or take, three, four years ago. There were uh, ebbs and flows as uh, Syrian civil war was happening. Sometimes uh, Assad uh, uh, had advantage, sometimes rebels. Some later there was split between rebels and ISIS. Uh, but uh, by effectively uh, spring 2015, rebels uh, and ISIS both uh, held advantageous positions uh, with uh, Assad regime being uh, very vulnerable. Uh, to potential fall of Hama government that would split uh, regime territory into three uh, separate areas. And both Russia and Iran uh, at that point decided to uh, help Assad uh, with substantial uh, manpower from Iran and its allies uh, and uh, Russia with, it, uh, with its equipment, uh, shipments, uh, as well as Air Force support. 
This was mostly uh, regime uh, having both manpower as well as equipment uh, shortages. So some of the changes that happened after Russia arrived happened partially because there was simply a much smaller amount of equipment. What you uh, could see earlier, like uh, random uh, checkpoints somewhere 50 miles behind the uh, front line that had a uh, couple BMPs or uh, tanks, uh, was uh, getting less and less common because uh, those tanks, BMPs, artillery and infantry uh, were being sent to frontline units just to replace losses, which uh, especially in 2015 uh, were getting quite serious, both during uh, ISIS advance in the east uh, and during Idlib battle uh, with coalition of rebels in northern Syria. Regime took very heavy losses in uh, both areas and had to uh, replace several hundred tanks uh, uh, just in like matter of months. After Russia arrived, uh, they uh, tried essentially classic Soviet tactic or operation uh, where they launched large amounts of uh, mechanized troops uh, towards northern Idlib or northern Hama, sorry. It failed absolutely spectacularly. Absolute massacre of tanks uh, in like few days and regime ultimately ended up losing some territory. So after that, uh, most likely with some Russian guidance, Syrian Arab army, so-called, because uh, while people call it, uh, it's uh, most likely uh, most like a loose coalition of uh, formal SAA and total of militias. They implemented changes like no longer parking tanks uh, visible from rebel positions, which made them easy targets for ATGMs and instead moved them farther from the front line, mm -hmm. uh, usually serving uh, as a quick reaction force in case of rebel attacks or uh, just to be able to move quickly wherever regime wanted to attack. This was one of the things that helped, uh, I think, uh, regime most in relatively reducing their losses, because before that, uh, it was fairly common that uh, rebels simply scouted whatever tanks were visible uh, in re regime positions and sooner or later either hit them with ATGMs or infiltrated position uh, if it was in some complex terrain it was possible to get close and either kill the crew, destroy the tank, or capture them. Did Russia bring tanks with them? Yeah, uh, well, Russia brought some tanks uh, for their own forces. Uh, those were both T-90s and T-72s that were upgraded. Uh, Russia also provided uh, some uh, amount of T-72s and T-90s and later T-62Ms uh, to Syrian army. And this uh, needs to be split into two categories. T-72s and T-90s were provided in uh, small numbers, like dozens. Uh, and they went mostly to uh, elite formations, some so-called Tiger forces, some uh, Iranian militias got a few T-90s as well. Uh, but mostly those were small numbers that uh, wouldn't uh, affect course of the war. Uh, Russia also later started shipping what was for Russian forces absolutely obsolete uh, T-62Ms, uh, which were originally supposed to be scrapped, uh, and uh, donated them to Syrian uh, army. 
Uh, also, Russia uh, provided uh, Assad with uh, a lot of spare parts and uh, other equipment that helped uh, either fix or overhaul a lot of equipment that had like minor damage or needed uh, some help to be operational again, uh, which was a major help, help for uh, Assad's forces in the field. Before 2015, often uh, problems uh, and uh, losses uh, happened before war as well as during the war. Equipment wasn't properly maintained. There was lack of spare parts and things like that. Right, so Russia just came in and helped them basically kind of fix themselves up, you know, pimp out the old broken um, tanks and I guess show them how to use it properly. Uh, also, uh, I would say that uh, Russian supplies of tanks were nowhere near as important for Assad's regime and its survival uh, as uh, its air power. That was a lot more decisive uh, than anything on the ground they helped with. Sure. Um, so we've established that the SAA were using their tanks the wrong way. How do you use a tank the right way? You know, what's the tactics of using a tank correctly to beat your adversary in war? Correct uh, way of uh, using tanks in modern environment is a very well trained force that uh, coordinates heavily between tanks, APCs, accompanying infantry, uh, and whatever uh, artillery and uh, air power you have in support. Uh, you also usually have uh, some support vehicles with you uh, that can help, let's say, recover uh, damaged tanks. You can evacuate uh, your wounded troops, etc. Uh, which is exact opposite of uh, what the uh, uh, Syrian army usually did. Also, one of the problems that uh, Syrian tr troops uh, often encountered was that uh, equipment was sent to units and positions with uh, no regard to uh, what training they had, how many people they had there. So you had cases uh, like uh, base getting 20 uh, tanks or uh, 10 artillery cannons with no people trained to operate them and things like that. Right, so it's a case of having all the brawn and none of the brains, basically. Uh, yeah, pretty much. There was uh, also fairly poor coordination between arms, so you can have uh, both infantry and tanks uh, in the same place. But, uh, they didn't coordinate with each, with each other. They were from different units and sometimes uh, given completely different orders. This was especially visible in uh, some cases uh, in 2015 during battles for Idlib, where one unit tried to advance, uh, second uh, tried to retreat or stay, hold the position, uh, and it uh, essentially just resulted in higher losses. Sounds like an absolute shit show, to be honest. Uh, yeah, uh, rebels, and uh, especially if there was uh, no split between rebels and ISIS, uh, uh, fought as a one force, not as a thousand small units with each uh, different interests and goals and plans, Syrian army would have fallen apart a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I know you did a lot of your research uh, via open source and you eventually ended up uploading, what is it, like 130 gigabytes of Syrian civil war footage to the internet. Can you tell us about that? Why did you document all that and, you know, and upload it? I started archiving uh, footage uh, around uh, mid-2015. Uh, when I noticed that a lot of uh, ATGM footage, especially uh, use of uh, tow anti-tank guided missiles, was disappearing and uh, being essentially mass-reported by uh, pro-regime trolls. Uh, 
So I decided uh, I should at least try to uh, archive as much as possible. And gradually I started uh, archiving all the combat footage I can find uh, from Syrian civil war, not just anti-tank guided missile with uh, which I started. Uh, and it snowballed uh, into a fairly time-consuming project which I am running until today, where I try to hoard the data and try to uh, translate uh, everything, uh, like file names, uh, where the event happened, which weapons were involved, etc., etc., and archive it uh, in a way that allows those files to be sorted, uh, searched, and analyzed uh, for whatever purpose uh, you want to. Yeah, no, I've seen the archive. It's really something. There's so much there, man. Well, I, that's just the sorted part. Uh, I also have some files that are in Arabic, uh, uh, also some uh, fairly large chunk of ISIS videos that I don't have dates. Uh, I don't know places because they have uh, those uh, for me, uh, relatively funny uh, Arabic names, uh, which might have some context uh, for Arabic speaker, uh, but doesn't tell me anything. And uh, some of it is just reference to like uh, Middle Ages battles and uh, things like that. That is just sitting on my hard drive waiting for someone to sort them out. Uh, because I don't speak Arabic. Uh, and uh, honestly, uh, dealing with ISIS footage is... Uh, a lot uh, less user-friendly. Yeah, I remember the first proper ISIS video I watched, and it wasn't some weird gore fest. I've seen enough of that shit. It was just because I was like, right, I want to... It was clanging of the swords. You remember that? And fucking hell. Like, I remember within two minutes, they're just driving up the motorway and just uh, a guy empties a whole clip into some poor lad's head that he's just pulled him out of his car. Like, yeah, it's, it's not nice work. Uh, it's much harder to sort out ISIS footage because uh, you usually get it uh, in some bunch of files uh, and uh, uh, no description, uh, whatever audio is there is obviously in Arabic. So I have uh, problems like uh, establishing where it happened, uh, usually when it happened. So that will probably have to wait for somebody else to sort. <laughs> I know we have a lot of... Arabic speakers that listen to Popular Front, so hopefully someone gets in touch with you. Um, what is your ultimate goal with this, you know, collecting all this footage? Well, preserve uh, the footage for the future, uh, because a lot of it still, is still being uh, deleted uh, from public servers like YouTube, LiveLeak, uh, uh, and even Archive.org, which some people suggested for uh, uploading uh, content there. Uh, they, they are as capable of delete, mass deleting data as everyone else. So that's why I prefer using torrents, because as long as uh, people have the content uh, and uh, uh, stay online, it's available for everyone else. Yeah, I tell you what, it really, I feel so stupid now, but I didn't really think about it at the time. I had playlists on YouTube where I would gather loads of different videos. There was a lot of YPG stuff from the early days that I wanted to gather for various analysis and research. And, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, I remember just happened to go on one of those uh, playlists and nearly everything was gone because, you know, fucking YouTube with their censorship, they just, a oh, war video, take it down. Like, it's absolutely disgusting. And to be honest, it's why I'm so vehemently anti-censorship because what you're doing is ultimately very often destroying evidence of war crimes that if, if people weren't doing what you're doing, 
could just vanish. You know, it's just going to sit on some bloke's phone somewhere in Syria. And if it's deleted off the internet, people might never see it again. It's, it really pisses yeah. me off, man. Quite often, even if uh, the original uh, content creator would have, let's say, easy time uh, appealing to have it reinstated, they might be dead or in some refugee camp, obviously without internet uh, and things like that. Uh, so a lot of that content, which theoretically uh, might be easy to recover, is gone forever as soon as it's deleted. Absolutely. Have you found it harder to get hold of the footage? Uh, yeah, I have spent uh, like literally two days, uh, like from uh, morning till night, when I just searched for uh, footage from a few ISIS battles uh, in the eastern Syria, uh, which I was highly interested in. And, and it took me literally those two full days uh, just to find what I was looking for. Uh, I, at the end, I found it on some obscure uh, channels uh, that had like five views or something. Uh, and some of it uh, I found uh, uh, earlier uh, also on LiveLeak, which at least previously uh, tend to delete uh, less content than YouTube. But some of it was pure luck. Some of it was just finding let's say, some channel that was re-uploading old footage and you simply uh, threw away everything else you were going doing and got as much data from that channel as possible <laughs> while it was up. So uh, some of it was like gone a week later, no problem, <laughs> like nothing happened. Uh, and uh, also I got uh, some uh, footage uh, from other users uh, who Uh, either Syrians uh, who uh, originally took some videos uh, or uh, from people who downloaded for whatever reason video earlier uh, and uh, were uh, willing to share and I was able to find them. So that helped a lot. Uh, but uh, as uh, you said, a lot of uh, earlier video lists uh, had like, let's say, 200 videos and 190 were gone. So that was a huge issue. Uh, but from time to time, I uh, found uh, some great source uh, and uh, got, let's say, 50, 70 videos from that source. It piled up gradually. I also started doing this more than three years ago. So during that time, obviously, uh, sometimes you had to uh, uh, sometimes bad luck uh, where there was like nothing new in a month. And sometimes uh, uh, you had steady stream of uh, old footage uh, coming. Really hard work, uh, spent a lot of time uh, both collecting those uh, videos and images uh, and uh, organizing them uh, so that they can be useful to people. Right, and you're doing this, nobody's paying you, you're just doing this off your own back, right? You work in IT, you're nothing to do with that community, you just do it because you want to do it, is that correct? That's correct, I work in uh, telecommunications and I am doing this because I became interested in Syrian civil war very early, uh, essentially as soon as it started, uh, because uh, uh, I always uh, tried to follow military conflicts, but uh, Syria was unique in that uh, you had a lot of uh, videos and images from, from fighting as well as uh, after uh, combat reports and tours of the battlefield or conquered bases and things like that, which usually, uh, at least until a few years ago, was uh, really unique about Syria. 
Yeah, I think it was. I think the Syrian civil war is really the first conflict to play out on social media. You know, there was no other war really that I can think of that it happened that way. Yeah, and there was quite clear progress in quality of footage as uh, Syrian civil war uh, has been going on. I, I remember, like, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, the first footage was, you know, shot on a potato basically, and then, then afterwards, now, you know, I remember seeing ISIS videos, thinking it's, it's a shame that shooter is a jihadi because I would like to I would like to have that cameraman with me you know what I mean to shoot docs it was really something it's it's been fascinating to see it play out you know yeah some of the footage especially uh, from Jabhat al-Nusra uh, and ISIS uh, like GoPros uh, going which they're essentially frontline troops that were close up uh, and uh, fighting within few meters of uh, regime troops that was some incredible footage that they produced. But obviously, the groups themselves are absolute shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think we got that, man. I think it's really good. If if people want to get hold of you to contact you about your work on the tanks or all of this footage that you've you've collected, how can they do that? Mostly on Twitter, uh, where I'm available at rebel44cz. Also, when you open my profile, you can uh, see a link to my uh, archive that I made available via uh, Torrents. So feel free to uh, download it, share it with everyone you want, uh, use it for your own research. Credit would be nice, but not necessary. Uh, and just do your own things with the uh, content I have gathered. I also plan to probably next year uh, make an update um, because while uh, there is not much all that much going on in Syria right now. I have still managed to gather some more old uh, data and videos. I love that. I love that. You're doing great work, man. Good luck with it all, yeah? Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Jakob Janowski talking about the absolute shit show that is or was the regime's tank fleet in Syria. To keep us moving forward to support Popular Front and get bonus episodes, narrated articles, join the Discord, all sorts of stuff, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. Also go to thedefensepost.com, defense with an S, some of the best writing on war and conflict at the moment. Also subscribe to us on YouTube, that's youtube.com slash popularfront, hit the bell because soon me and Yon Connell Kiani are going to be producing a new documentary, it's going to come out on the YouTube first of course. Also follow us on Instagram, that's instagram.com slash popular.front. To keep up to date on Twitter, go to twitter.com slash jake underscore hanrahan, h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n is how you spell my surname. Or if you can't be bothered with me, follow at popularfrontco. That's the Popular Front Twitter. And if you want Popular Front merchandise, go to the shop. That's popularfront.bigcartel.com. We've got patches, t-shirts, and we're doing a special trench mug for Christmas. I know it sounds mental, but people like it. They've been buying it, um, and it's selling out fast. All of the merch has gone quite fast, so be sure to get there. popularfront.bigcartel.com. This episode was made possible thanks to the following people. Patrick Bronte, Casey Francis, Zachary Hinch, Teddy, Stephen R. D. Henderson, Ryan Sandercock, Peter McCormack, Alium Leroy, Axel Iverson, Cedar Fenn, Chad Walker, Cody Bergerud, Dan, Diana Gorvanek, Dan Dunham, Emily Molly, 
Fletcher Tate, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Lawrence Abrahams, LH and Margaret Bowling. Thank you very much. Please do consider supporting independent conflict journalism at patreon.com slash popularfront. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Son of Old. Go to his SoundCloud, that's son-of-old. للجبهة شعبية اسمع للجبهة شعبية